Hey everybody, welcome to Startup Hand-Me-Downs, the podcast that passes insights from founders and thought leaders down to the next generation. I'm your host, Philip Kasumu, and today I had the pleasure of interviewing Katia Beecham, the co-founder and CEO of Birchbox, which now has more than 1 million subscribers, 4 million total customers, 800 beauty and grooming brand partners, and they operate in six different countries with a flagship store in New York City. Wow. This was a really insightful episode just to hear and learn about the genesis of Birchbox. Um, Anyone who has a fashion startup needs to listen to this. So please share it um, if you know someone who is in that space. Um, Anyway, that's enough from me. Let's get into the show. So Kasia, thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. Um, So let's just get straight into it. So when you go to dinner parties, how do you introduce yourself? I introduce myself as Katia Beecham. Nice to meet you. How do you introduce yourself? <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, of course. I say, you know, I'm Philip Kasumu. But when people say, okay, I'm what do you I'm a Scorpio. Yeah. Oh, so um, You are. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so, this is going to be interesting. Yeah, it is. Um, so when people say, what do you do, for example, how do you introduce yourself? I say I started and am the CEO of a new beauty e-commerce company. New-ish. And it depends on, sometimes I'll say Birchbox. Or, you know, I typically, like, am hedging a little bit. So I say, you know, I work in e-commerce. It, it really depends, right? It varies on, like, how much somebody really wants to know the answer yeah. to that. <laughs> how, um, you know, verse they might be in the startup scene, in which case I feel like saying Birchbox yeah. is pretty well known. Or if I just think it's kind of pleasantries and hopefully we're going to talk about even more interesting things, like the world around us. <laughs> awesome. So, okay. I did some research, of course. Um, so after college and during college when you went back to do your MBA, you were actually in finance for some time. Mm-hmm. So where did this idea of a beauty startup actually come from? We definitely came from when we were in business school. Um, but I did have my one internship that wasn't in finance in college was for Estee Lauder yeah. um, corporate. And when I was 19, I had a really great experience because I had exposure to the executives at Estee Lauder. They did an executive training kind of camp where the um, senior management would come to do presentations, but they would also bring Harvard Business School professors and coaches. And I really learned so much about the business of beauty that Mm -hmm. summer and remember thinking it's brilliant. And it's filled with really intelligent, creative, kind of right brain, left brain people. The Lauders themselves had a company where the culture was magical. Of course, at a nineteen year as a nineteen year old, you can't completely appreciate that. But even a few years into working for somebody, I recognized that there was something very special. So it left uh, an impression. You know, when I. thought about going to business school and decided to go to business school, I definitely was considering a beauty corporate career. Mm, Not necessarily because I was someone that loved beauty as a consumer, but because I had really developed um, an affinity and an interest in beauty as a business. And then, you know, was fortunate enough when Haley and I, my co-founder, started thinking about writing a business plan that we really saw this opportunity in beauty and we saw that at a very basic level beauty was not being sold on the internet in Mm -hmm. 2010 two percent of sales in beauty happened online that just seemed staggering and also that it was the a category where there was no seeming change on the horizon Mm -hmm. so under penetrated and also steady 
And we said, someone's going to figure out how to unlock beauty e-commerce online. It's going to be billions of dollars. Why not us? And, you know, we got really excited and started just asking ourselves the questions of why isn't it happening? How can we overcome what the internet isn't able to give consumers? And how can we leverage the internet for what it's great at? And frankly, we got so excited that within about 24 hours, we came up with what the model is. Um, because we said, well, the internet obviously can't give you the tactile, you know, reality of beauty. And that's yeah, exactly. such a core part of purchase in this category on layered on top of the fact that people don't return beauty. Really. It's just not as much of a behavior. Mm-hmm. So we knew that we had to overcome that you wanted to smell it and touch it and experience it. We knew another huge barrier for consumption was the proliferation of choice. Yeah. There's so many options. And we felt like for us, and we assumed for many consumers that meant you just opted out of making a choice, of changing your routine, of adding to your routine. So we knew we had to limit the world. And in thinking about all of this, we recognized that we could build a beauty e-commerce company online by having this subscription that was personalized as kind of an entry point right. or an appetizer. And we were really excited because obviously subscriptions are great interesting cash flow yeah, model for yeah. um, a revenue model and we really felt like it checked the box of overcoming why people weren't shopping for beauty and the, from the very beginning the vision was always get you to buy the beauty online right yeah. that's the idea so like i said within about 24 hours we had this idea of a subscription service paired with content paired with the e-commerce experience and we just got so excited that we started running toward it so you mentioned that okay you had this billion dollar idea literally we thought so and um, well yeah. turned out to be true <laughs> um what kind of gave you guys the confidence that look we're two girls who don't necessarily know too much about this space just yet beauty or technology yeah so what kind of gave you guys the confidence because neither of you are technical co-founders either so like how did you know this was going to work people ask me that all the time um i don't know i don't know if it was specific to this idea because obviously i've been doing it since or if it's just none of my personality i didn't i had tunnel vision i didn't Mm. see any other way and there was skepticism about the idea and i didn't I didn't internalize the, what how it was coming. When someone would say this isn't going to work, or you know, no one's going to pay for samples, or we won't participate in this, I was just like, okay. I didn't say it right because yeah. clearly it's going to work. Yeah. You know, and I don't know where it came from, but it just seemed so obvious. Mm. Um, and also, I think you know, maybe this is more personal, but I didn't see this as being terribly risky. You know, I didn't come from anything. It wasn't like I was leaving a high-paying job. I was graduating from business school. And I just didn't see, like, what the worst thing could happen is it failed and I had to go get a job that I was going to be, I think, more employable for after having tried. So it didn't seem very risky, actually, in the early days. It was much more into the company when I started to be, you know, like, aware and, you know, question the confidence around, wow, we have something that could be massive. Are we going to be able to execute on that? Because, you know, it's really challenging. It's hard enough to have a good idea. It's, you know, really lucky when you have the right timing. Attracting the right people, retaining the right people, and then building the whole organization that can actually execute on an opportunity. So challenging. 
Um, we're gonna we're gonna get onto that. Yeah. As well, right but so so you've done your research. Twenty four hours. You've got you've gone into Google and you've gone crazy. <laughs> so how did you guys actually start? What were the first steps you guys took to actually get this off the ground? So the first thing that we did is a little bit counterintuitive, I think, for most founders, which is that we told everybody the idea. Um, we good. basically started running informal focus groups. We told we talked to professors about it. We talked to students, and then we ran formal focus groups, basically trying to understand whether we could change behavior because we knew that one of the most questionable things about our idea was that nobody had ever paid for samples. Samples in the consumer's minds were seen as a free mm. item. Yeah. And everybody was just like, why would I ever pay for a sample? Yeah. Right. So we, we needed to learn and, and dig into that. And then almost in parallel, but, but second thing we did was cold email brands. Because once we really, like, you know, started being able to describe what the value propos- proposition was enough and, and believe ourselves that there were going to be consumers that were had product market fit. Yeah. We needed beauty brands to be on board because um, it was really critical that we had brands that basically signaled what our brand was. Yeah. We had no awareness, mm-hmm. so we had to be able to borrow awareness from others. So we cold emailed CEOs and presidents of huge beauty brands and yeah. said, we're going to change the beauty industry forever and we want your advice basically yeah and with an attachment that had a very one page overview of what the idea was and honestly the hit rate was pretty incredible um almost everybody got back to us and was willing to have a call to give us advice that's insane from there we were like by the way we want you to participate you know and from there we got a meeting and from there we were able to close the brands to be in our first boxes. And then from there we built a website, we acquired customers and we launched the test of the idea, which was only for two months for 200 women. So how did the launch go? Were you guys physically getting these samples? Mm-hmm. Did you have to pay for them? No. So they were free? Yes. And then you guys got the branding? Well, it was more than that, right? Because, I mean, the samples were the easy part in retrospect. It's crazy that these brands let us market that there were our partners, right? (laughs) Um, And then we also sold the full size. So the whole vision of Birchbox was to have a personalized subscription with content with full size. And in the test, we actually did all three of those things. So um, our first hire was an editor. She was actually the inspiration for what we wanted Birchbox to feel like because she was Haley's best friend who was a beauty editor. And for somebody who doesn't love beauty, it was game-changing for Haley to have someone have access to everything, curate it for her, teach her how to use it. So we hired her um, to write, you know, the copy and the tutorial, like how to use this and that kind of of content. And so we sent the first 200 boxes, um, you know, four, only four samples in a box. Then we sent you how to use it. And then we let you purchase everything from Birchbox. And... You know, honestly, the beta was a huge success. We had only 200 spots, which we filled pretty easily. And then after the first box went out, a wait list developed of over a thousand people. Wow. And we had no marketing. We were, it was just the users getting excited. Um, So that gave us confidence. And then we had a great conversion from the sample to the full size, even in a really terrible web you know, environment, like the user experience was terrible. Um, Definitely felt sketchy. Like we only accepted PayPal. (laughs) And we did all the fulfillment ourselves. So yes, we we got the samples, we kitted the boxes, we took everything in Ikea bags to the post office, then we received orders. 
We fulfilled the orders. Nice. We took them back to the post office. The post office man was like, go, girls, go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very lean startup Yeah, so who, So who actually built a startup? And when you said you hire, you had your first hire, was she paid? Like, how- She was paid eventually. So at first she was keeping her job and just like did this eight. There yeah. was really eight product detail pages to write. Yeah. And, you know, probably eight or eight or ten pieces of content. I should check on that. But I would say eight, ten pieces of content. So we didn't pay yeah. um, for that. But when we decided we were going to launch, and before we took salaries, when we asked her to leave her job, she, we paid her. So we took our money, our savings, and we paid her because she was our yeah, first hire. Um, and then we started paying ourselves once we once we got capital. Awesome. And who built the website, the first version? Um, I'm so mad at myself for blanking on the name right now because they were so <laughs> um, emailed some guys at the dev shop in San Diego, I want to say. And, you know, found them in a hysterical way, you know, just looking at other sites and that were so simple mm. and gave them a hysterical list of specs. And I'm sure these guys laughed a lot. <laughs> um, but luckily, like, distilled it down to what it needed to be. And they did something very simple, which which is what we needed for the beta and cheap. Of course, yeah. Right? And then on top of that, actually, they ended up designing our first logo as a kicker because they were like, you need a logo. We were like, right. Upsell. Can you help us? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so they did that, and that was great. So it was really inexpensive. It was WordPress with a shopping plugin, but it had to be gated because the initial brands, like, you know, needed some protection. And yeah. we weren't sure whether we were going to kind of have the subscription include the content and how that would play out. So it had some complicating factors, but not many. Um, and then after we completed the beta and decided we were going to do this, we were going to graduate and do this, then we hired a more sophisticated agency in Oregon that built the first site and they did it very quickly. Wow. So you we guys didn't have any still, technical You guys were still at college. We were in business school. Business school, school then yes. Your... yes. Wow. Yeah, it was intense. It was fun. Um, and the environment was very supportive yeah. because a lot of people do have ideas at HBS. Not as many companies actually launch while they were there. Yeah. So professors were really supportive. We were introduced to a lot of investors. We ended up writing a business plan after the beta test. Right. And one second place, got some money from the um, from the school, got you know, in kind resources like attorneys and accountants, which helped to set everything up. Perfect. It was great. Um, so that network, you know, HBS, perfect. Yeah, it definitely was an incredible experience to start a company there. Like so positive. Yeah. So what was actually the time span between the initial email? Yeah. And the beta test, like sending out your first two months. Two months. Wow. Yeah. That's quick. Very. It's a quick turnaround. Yeah. Um, I'm also a big believer in cold emails. You know, that's how I live. <laughs> and then if you're an entrepreneur, you have to just get comfortable sending those cold emails. You know, what's the worst that can happen? Right. I mean, I think that what defines everything about being an entrepreneur, or maybe a leader in general, is you have to get comfortable being uncomfortable a yeah. lot. Yes. And yes, it is super uncomfortable to email someone you don't know. Yeah. Um, but you'd be surprised how many people just want to help, want to get involved. Mm. No, exactly. Um, so you guys have raised quite a lot of money over, you know, the last five, six years. Mm-hmm. Um, in the beginning, so you've got some notable investors like Gary V, etc. What did you guys use the initial seed money for? Oh, this is such an unfair answer because we didn't. Um, you know, we were really lucky that we found product market fit almost yeah. immediately. And we hadn't anticipated what happened, which is that Birchbox went viral. We raised capital the way, reason why everyone raises capital to acquire customers, right? And then to continue to grow the business. Mm-hmm. And we 
estimated how much we thought it would be to acquire customers and we raised capital based on that. And then frankly, it didn't cost us anything to acquire customers and we hit our five year target in seven months. Wow. And we weren't spending any of the money because we were making money. Um, <laughs> Sounds strange for a startup to say. <laughs> yeah. So we had, um, but we be, we fell really behind on investing in the future. Right. So eventually, you know, we had to catch up to that and really start building a team. It was very clear that this was a rocket ship, that there was product market fit domestically, that globally there were starting to be copycats. And we knew we had to run at the opportunity and we needed resources, you know, human capital to do more than what could be done by five people in five in 24 hours a day. Yeah. So we really buckled down and started building the team um, and tried to, you know, basically take 50% of our time for almost two months, like hiring. Yeah. And, um, you know, that started to be mean that we were planning a little bit ahead, ahead of time. And that's really where the seed capital went. Right. And then going on to hiring, what were the first initial hires other than the editor in chief? So, because you and um, Haley, you were both co-CEOs, right? <coughs> right. Yeah. So the initial, I mean, we still had really distinct things that Haley and I did. She focused more internally on operations. I did more externally right. on the building the partnerships that we needed and mm-hmm. those kinds of things. So um, the first hires, you know, I'd say were really impactful to the business for two reasons. One is they almost like hired themselves yeah. and um, developed the department that would become theirs and help define what that would be. I guess the very, very first hire after the editor was customer service. Oh, um, that's really important. Yeah. We managed it too. It, it required all of us to, to help with it, but we needed somebody to organize and help um, make sure the customers felt like they were getting answers to any questions that they had. And then after that, the next like three hires basically hired themselves, like came to us and said, I can do this for you. Mm. Um, and basically they were really talented, scrappy, young, ambitious. And we were like, that sounds great. You know, we, <laughs> we were exhausted. Um, so, so that's really what happened. They feel like they were persistent. They, um, you know, were interested in what we were doing. Um, understood they enough that this was going to be a little crazy. I mean, they saw the little shoebox we were working in. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really exciting. Um, then we hired another person to help on editorial that we had known from another startup. Um, we didn't even have a desk for her. She still works here. Wow. And she, she sat at a conference table most of the time. <laughs> um, yeah. And how did you guys like take to management? Because you had never managed anyone before. I would think you probably should ask them. Um, <laughs> How do you think you did it? I think that we did. I think that we did well um, enough because we knew that we wanted Birchbox to be the best place that we ever worked. And you know, I think you know we each had different experiences working for somebody, but we knew that what we wanted to come to work in every day and what we wanted to inspire us to like really be motivated to be at the office meant that the environment had to be really special and unique. So I I do think that we set a level of a foundation level for Birchbox, but I don't think we knew what we were doing, but it involved really respecting Mm -hmm. our team, um, definitely empowering them because honestly there was a lot to do. So it was a little bit of like, there was no other way, right. Other than empowerment. And also recognizing how to acknowledge what people were contributing to the company and then celebrate milestones together. But we had to learn all of that on the job. And frankly, you know, 
there is always inflection points as you're growing the team where you have to relearn it because it requires a whole new thing. So when there were five of us, six of us, 10 of us, it was really easy for communication to flow, right. be very transparent, yeah. um, where people really understood, you know, here were our numbers for the day, here we wanted to do tomorrow, here's, you know, what everyone's working on, you could see it. Yeah. And then you have to start to design that as the organization gets larger because transparency or communication or purpose driven work is how anything can be successful. Yeah. People don't understand how what they're doing fit, it fits into what the overall goal and mission and vision is, then it's really hard for them to bring their whole soul yeah. to it. And soulful work is how you get the best product if you are a consumer facing brand. Mm. Because the culture, the energy, that is all what you know you think of as internal things, but that is actually the brand. Yeah. Right. So we had to learn a lot about that along the way. And frankly, it's a never ending learning process because the entity continues to evolve. The humans within it continue to evolve. And, you know, management or the leadership has to evolve and say, OK, what does this now need? Yeah. Right. Um, and it's the most important part of my job. It's the hardest yeah. part. And I think it's somewhat unchartered because, you know, you want things to just keep getting better like for society even the best companies that did it last year you want to think about it in an even better way yeah right so it always feels like a, a big challenge and a worthy one yeah no for sure okay thanks for answering that um so i want to switch gears now and talk a bit more about marketing yeah so initially you said it was really organic you know 200 people signed up and then you had a waiting list of a thousand how have you guys acquired customers since then? What's changed? So, What's been like the biggest channel for you guys? Um, it's still really focused on the customer's experience of the product. Right. Um, you know, we really, we really know that it's a critical part of growth. In the early days, it was critical because nobody knew what Birchbox was. Yeah. And traditional marketing isn't really designed to explain what your product is. Yeah. Um, you'll find that it's a little heartbreaking because when you have a big idea, mm. you get interviewed for press and you want to say the whole big idea. Yeah. It ends up, you know, especially in the early days, being distilled down to like 10 words if you're lucky. Yeah. <laughs> Three of them are in bold and the price. Right? <laughs> so yeah. you have to learn how to make it like a really tight statement that overly simplifies what it is. Mm. And then hope and then you hope that you'll have opportunities and tools to deepen the relationship deep in the notion of what your product is right. and show how thoughtful it is over yeah. time. But that was a learning for sure. Um, was that, you know, we couldn't express the full value proposition, how deep it was, how, you know, much we believed in it to, in marketing messages and yeah. what is considered traditional marketing messages. However, the users, that's actually how they recruit for you. Yeah. So users tell stories that are so much more than Birchbox's a personalized subscription for $10 a month. Users will say, you know, this, they'll start with a statement that could be very passion driven. This has changed my life. It's so much fun. I'm finding products that I would have never found without yeah. it. And now I buy this new thing and they like sell the whole value proposition mm. in a very organic way that is relevant to the people. So we've always known that the product has to be great. And it is challenging because every month it's the opportunity to make you super happy, yeah. disappoint you. Um, and it definitely goes down to setting expectations up front. And that is a really important part of marketing. So as we you know, became more mature, it, would, it took about four years before we really had um, 
proper, I guess, performance marketing here yeah. wow. because the product was growing extremely quickly. Just organically. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when we, when we did institute that, I'd say it was a huge learning for the company how to think about it, how to um, recognize that this was a great business that could attract people on a very simple value proposition, but then how did you onboard them so that they were a great and valuable customer? Right. So those kinds of things. And today where we are is definitely a mix between organic and performance marketing. But what I'd say is we still have to be very focused on the organic piece mm. because our core customer is a woman who doesn't love beauty. Yes. So we focus on an a woman who has an average interest and relationship with beauty. So by definition, she's extremely hard to acquire through traditional paid marketing, yeah. right? Because she's not like, what's this new beauty discovery <laughs> box, right? Yeah. She is fine, yeah. right? And actually what recruits her is someone else's experience and she's thinking, oh, that's like me, yeah. right? I also have no time. This is also not a priority. And it would be nice to change it up, to add something new, to find a new innovation. So. What we focus on is this dual prong approach, and it's I'm obviously oversimplifying it between organic, which is based on the product itself, mm -hmm. based on the user's experience themselves, themselves, and trying to amplify what they're saying, and based on creating content and being very present and on the social channels, yeah. and pairing that with a very traditional and um, high functioning marketing funnel, where the you know the goal is that they really reinforce each other. Mm. Right, because we're in an era where consumers can have so much direct access to a company um, and so much direct access, frankly, to the company's customers that it's really hard to believe that traditional marketing is going to do a great job because it is obviously self-serving. So what has to happen is that the traditional marketing has to echo what the users are saying. Yes. Right? Because otherwise there is a lack of trust, there's a lack of belief in what it can be. So that is how we think about it. And we have both, and um, we really try to make sure that they work really hand in hand today. Yeah, for sure. And how do you kind of see the subscription box industry growing or changing over time? Because it's, it's evolved a lot since you guys started yeah. out, right? There's a lot more players in, in this space. There's, there are. I think it's really misunderstood is where I would start. I mean, first and foremost, um, you know, subscription as subscription as a revenue model is not a new concept yeah. um, it's obviously existed for like centuries um, people have subscribed to you know content they've subscribed to product in this way it's, it's a very common way of saying you know I'm loyal to something yeah. and wanting to put it on a repeat and I think it is often referred to as a business model which it's not it's a revenue model um, mm, and I it's a tool in a business yeah. Right? But it, fundamentally, it's a revenue model. And I also think that um, not all subscriptions are the same. So mechanically speaking, I categorize subscription in three buckets. There's subscription in its more traditional sense, which is a replenishment tool. Yeah. Now leveraged online, but it has existed for a really long time. So, you know, you want something, send it to me all the time. Then there's subscription that was once really around gifting, I'd say. But it's, it's still now, that's evolved a bit, where you could get wine of the month, steak of the month, yeah. those types of things, yeah. fruit of the month. Um, and now you can get a product that way, like you could get your clothes that way. But the, the product that you're being subscribed to is that that's it. You get the product and that's it. It's your wine, those are your clothes, you're done. Yeah. And then the third bucket is where we are, which is subscription as a marketing tool, right? It's as yeah. an appetizer, as a taste 
where that's not the product, that's not the transaction. It's just to help you have a different consideration set. Yeah. And then for us, we consider the product, the transaction to be when you convert to the full size. Yeah. So there's different types. Um, and I think, um, I think it's a great revenue model. I think it can be really powerful for a business and can be um, incredible for a consumer-facing business because it builds this relationship with your consumer where you don't have to wait for them to decide to visit you you know, on the web, in person, where you're really there, yeah. right? Um, and that is so powerful. Mm. It just doesn't work for every industry, and it certainly doesn't work for every category, and it shouldn't be a tack-on to something, right? It needs to be considered that it makes it better. So for us, the reason why we landed on subscription wasn't because we wanted to sell people samples. It was because we wanted to overcome why people weren't shopping for full-size beauty on the internet. And we realized, well, the amount of product is really challenging. There's millions of decisions you could make. And then it feels like if you go into a store where there now are tens of thousands of decisions, it's still, you know, drinking from a fire hose. So we said, wouldn't it be nice if the cadence was digestible, right? If you could just get a product a week, basically, Mm. and like... You could really decide whether you wanted it. And then we realized, well, that is a subscription. That's nice, right? You're just kind of discovering at your own pace. And Mm -hmm. what Birchbox allows you to do is stay passive and have a much better experience shopping for beauty. So who that speaks to is a woman where beauty is not her priority or her passion or something that she has time to make a priority. We say, that's fine. Mm. You know, you should still have the best product. You should still enjoy the experience instead of seeing it as a chore of like, I'm out of face wash or I'm out of shampoo and I just have to like get that done. Beauty is supposed to be a fun, enjoyable, sensorial experience. And we say, you know what? You can stay passive and we can still make this much better for you. And over time, you don't even realize how good at this you're becoming. Yeah. Awesome. And how have you came up with like the whole this kind of vision? It's happened over time. You know, yeah. I think it started with the kernel of this realization that this is too hard and it makes no sense in a really fun category. Yeah. Um, we knew that it was depressing spend because it was depressing our spend. Mm. We knew that we weren't spending to our potential because the category was confusing. Um, because you know it just didn't make it to our priority. We weren't people who were obsessed with beauty. And we thought, we're going to figure this out for consumers and make it really efficient and really delightful to change your beauty routine all the time. Um, And that's where it started. And then a few years in, we we did formal research with a third party where we learned that we had such a unique consumer. Most beauty retailers, the majority of the revenue comes from people who love beauty naturally. Um, That's who they market to. That's who they build the whole user experience for. And we you know, unbeknownst to us, designed it more for our insight, which were for people who didn't love beauty, but we hadn't thought about it that way. And we way disproportionately attracted a woman who was not in anyone else's consideration set. And we thought, wow, it's so interesting to think not about stealing share from the incumbent players, but about generating new demand and capturing new demand. And that, I don't know, for me, became even more exciting. I mean, always loved Birchbox and always loved what we were doing, but oh my gosh, we can grow the pie. We can change the way consumers interact with the whole category such that they feel great about it and the industry is bigger, right? So a win, win, win. um, And 
yeah, I think it's just hard not to get excited about it, but I'm an excitable person. <laughs> awesome. Um, so with companies like um, CreateJoy, making it a lot easier for people to, you know, set up, I'm sure they weren't around yeah. when you guys started. No, they weren't. It would have helped, I'm yeah. sure. <laughs> um, how do you guys intend on staying competitive in this space? Um, and be the forefront of the market. Yeah, I think you're. I think it's definitely on our mind, but um, it's not. I don't find it to be incredibly challenging because I have two things. I think when you are fortunate enough to be um, recognized as kind of a pioneer yeah. in something, and it's natural that people will come in to, to copy, to kind of, of emulate, to take inspiration from an idea, yeah. um, and it's a compliment. However, I think that one thing I've learned overseeing the thousands of ones launch and, and go away mm. is that it's really impossible to copy vision. And the actual manifestation of vision, like the product, is not the underlying insight. Mm -hmm. And it's the underlying insight that gives a product um, stickiness to a consumer, right? Because if it doesn't have insight, if it's just sheer, like you'll buy this right now, it's really hard for it to be sticky, yeah. right? Because it doesn't, you don't even know what you're delivering on. You don't know yeah. what the insight is. So I've learned over time it's really hard to, to copy vision. And then secondarily, we have had to evolve. And what I continue to see when there is new products and launches or you know when people do things is that they only really understand the insight that we had seven years ago. Like, or the business that we had seven years ago. Our business is so different now because, you know, we personalize, we personalize, we send thousands of different products at a month and you see five yeah. if you sign up, right? And we also allow levels of choice, which is in increasingly hard when it comes to personalization. So we allow users to interact more. So we've always been evolving the product and then our vision for how it will continue to evolve is so big, yeah. right? And we know that people will continue to come into the playground and the and the goal of somebody that is a first mover is to keep graduating, right? To go to high school, to yeah. go to college, yeah. and to keep evolving what the user's expectations are of what was once seen as a subscription box for X dollars of samples, right? I think, you know, A, that's not an interesting company in my opinion, and B, um, what... What subscription is, is such a narrow concept of what you want the user relationship to be. So for us, it's really about how do we own and widen the definition for consumers yeah. such that the product stays really relevant and it shows that the brand really cares about the fact that consumers continue to live in a world that is rapidly changing, yeah. which means we have to change. Yeah, for sure. And I guess in terms of setting up Birchbox Man, mm -hmm. Did you take a similar approach into how you acquire users? And I guess, has it been the same response for Birchbox Man as it was for Birchbox It women? started, it's different. For sure, we knew it would be. We inherently knew Birchbox Man would not be as viral. Yeah. Right? Men, <laughs> a lot harder to, to entertain. Men aren't saying, like, don't I have, like, smoother skin for my exfoliation? Um, and we knew that would be challenging. <laughs> we also knew that... You know, of all of the underserved consumers, you know, re recognizing that the majority of women really weren't served yeah. by the existing um, paradigm in, in beauty, men were the most under underserved, yeah. right? Um, in grooming, no one had really even considered um, an environment to sell men product, and we realized that it was a huge opportunity. So it, it started off, of course, even bigger because it had the women's business. Yeah. So that's really beneficial and it has that nice overlap, mm -hmm. but it definitely doesn't have the same dynamics as far as virality goes. Yeah. So we have to definitely employ different tactics. On the other hand, we have way less competition. Yeah. 
Yes. Um, you know, in many ways, like from every side. So for Birchbox women, one of the hardest thing was to convince these massive, very well-known brands to scale and to like participate as we got, we got huge so fast. Yeah. Right. Um, but they didn't know if they want to open distribution. They're distributed all very well. So it took a lot of like, let me show you the data. Let's show yeah. you who our customers with men's. They're like, we don't have anybody who even prioritizes men yeah. <laughs> and wants to distribute. So we had the best brands like immediately. Straight away, yeah. Um, and then from the consumer side too, I mean, really like we're competing really with non-consumption, under-consumption, mass consumption. Um, there's hardly anywhere to go and find these products and they're great products. And, and we really believe that that is a, an awesome business. Yeah. I mean, I was speaking to a friend yesterday and he's like, yeah, I've had my fucking for a long time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's a real advocate. We didn't, um, we didn't he was like, yeah, it's that. a great, it's a great, it's a great product. Um, okay. So, I read an interview that you did um, a few months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, 25 things that you don't know about me. Okay, cool. Um, and a few of your responses were really interesting, so I just wanted to dig into that as well. So, number nine, you said, I'm obsessed with building a beauty company for women who aren't obsessed with beauty. Uh, so, I've heard you say that a few times. But what exactly does that really, really mean, if you were to break that down? So, the woman who just doesn't have time, ultimately. It's, you know, it's for a variety of reasons. It's a woman who either is truly not obsessed with beauty, right? She uses it, but it's just not a priority to her. Or she could be, but she certainly doesn't have time. She's picked other priorities in life where they've picked them for her. Um, And she's not the kind of person, what it means is she's not the kind of person who would have, you know, maybe five or 10 years ago read a beauty magazine. And she's not the person today who's looking online for beauty content, just like for just in case she wanted to create some transformative look. She's not that consumer because she's fine. She's not in distress about beauty. Um, and by definition, you know, I think that that has meant to the industry that she's not worth serving because she's not ever going to spend a lot. Yeah. But I, you know, fundamentally believe that she just needs to be treated and respected differently, right? Because just because she doesn't want to spend maybe 45 minutes doing her makeup. That's just not important to her. Mm -hmm. It's not how she wants to look. Certainly does not mean she's not willing to do more than she does today. And it might involve categories that are really hard to show through YouTube videos like skincare, right? Or taking care of yourself so you don't have to use, you know, 45 minutes to get ready or you can use fewer makeup products. And just acknowledging that there is a whole different consumer out there that could be spending more, maybe not the most, but why is it important to have only people who spend the most? That has, you know, that doesn't drive any category. Yeah. Um, but it ends up being who gets prioritized as far as the customer's experience and the user experience and the product. Yeah. So um, we are building the beauty company for the majority of women, right? Because the majority of us have either decided it's not a priority or don't have time to make it one. And we believe that that woman deserves to be respected and considered in the whole user experience of discovering beauty and that she should love every dollar deployed at beauty instead of just thinking of it as a chore or as I hope I didn't waste my money, that she should feel great and she should feel confident when she decides to invest. And we think it's a huge idea. We think it's the biggest idea in beauty retail. Sure. Next. You emailed Steve Jobs and he responded. He did. What did you say and what did he say? (laughs) Um, So I was going to business school at Harvard and 
Harvard offers um, a, I don't know if they still do it, they offered um, an IBM ThinkPad as a discount, like kind of as part of the onboarding, everyone gets that same computer. And I had been already a Mac user and was just confused that Mac wasn't even trying to compete from this business from my perspective, who knows, right? Um, So I emailed Steve Jobs and I said, you know, I really like I I would assume you want to be present in this environment where you know high achieving people were basically displaying their affinity for this these brands these mm-hmm. you know companions in their lives um, you know I want to be able to be a committed and loyal Mac user but the price like that they're offering for a better machine is is very different yeah <laughs> um, so basically you know just made an argument like that and then uh, sent it to him and he responded I think in a day or maybe two and offered me you know a similar machine at the same price wow. so like it wasn't like he just gave me something like, <laughs> discount <laughs> yeah he was like here's the same deal and I I'm pretty sure I was one of two people in my class with with Mac but yeah, I think it definitely reinforced a really important lesson around asking, you know, for something, like reaching high um, to get answers that you want. And it is a pretty crazy thing that happened. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> Do you still have the email? Yeah, of course. Of <laughs> yeah. course. Okay, so the final thing was, my motto is I don't accept no from anyone who can say yes. Who and I love who that. Who can't say yes. Who can't say yes. Yeah. So can you give me an example of when, you know, you kind of not accepted a no from someone? I, I mean, you heard me. I didn't even hear a no. <laughs> um, in the early days, it's just like I didn't compute. Um, yeah, I can give you so many examples. But, you know, I can distill it into two different ways of interpreting that. One is that when you are trying to disrupt something, trying to change something, and you are not vertically integrated, yeah. right? You're trying to do something, you need partnership. Mm-hmm. It's really critical when you are selling, when you're pitching your idea, that you are giving reasons to people to say yes, which means you cannot think about it, about your insight, the user, and what you want to build at your company. You have to think about it for them. Yeah. What is it going to get them? What is it going to get their career? You know, all of those things, like you have to arm them with reasons why they need to say yes, which is really different from just saying like, this needs to happen for the user, right? Um, It it has to be something that really moves any problems that they're having out of their way, any obstacles that they're having, any opportunities that they've wanted to tap into. So it has to do something that they were already looking to solve. Um, And that's really critical. So you empower them or you arm them with the reasons to say yes the reason, things to say to their boss, things to say to their CFO, right? You help yeah. them. And then the other way of interpreting it is it is really valuable to get to decision makers yeah. um, and to kind of like sandwich your approach when you're selling, right? To try to get advocacy at the top. And, you know, great leaders will not micromanage their leadership, mm-hmm. right? And they will not insist on anything. But their advocacy plus your arming and selling is a great recipe for getting, you know, support from companies and and people who really shouldn't support you yet yeah (laughs) right um and and it's something that you have to work really hard at and it it definitely requires that you deliver and you over deliver so that they can then be proud that they did that and vouch for you so that you can go get that somewhere else for sure that's awesome so i just want to work towards wrapping up now um favorite book that's a great question um (laughs) Favorite like narrative book. I'm gonna can I go back in time? 
You guys probably. Like, Tuck Everlasting from like fourth grade. I feel like that book expanded my mind. Um, I really loved Henry Miller and all of those books in high school. And then I guess, you know, from a business book perspective, it doesn't I, have to be a business book, but if you read a business book, it's cool. I do. I do. <laughs> um, I really liked Jack Welch's book. I, I felt it was really great leadership lessons and a lot of like, I wish I'd done better um, from somebody who obviously has done something really scaled and massive and had a lot of self-awareness around mistakes, which I thought was really valuable. Um, I listen to a lot of podcasts today. It's like definitely more of what I do or books that way. Which, which Audible. Podcasts? Yeah. Which, um, which podcasts? Podcasts. Well, I, <laughs> I listen to Reply All um, and Planet Money and I love those, but I also yeah. listened to Missing Richard Simmons, which was amazing and super short. It's just so interesting because Richard Simmons, you know, dropped off the face of the earth about three years ago yeah. um, <laughs> and just like trying to discuss what happened to him. And then... Um, yeah, and then I guess the last book I listened to was called Chaos Monkey, hmm. and it's about a founder of a company and his crazy experience launching and selling, and yeah. Wow. Um, biggest inspiration? Well, you know, I think that it's a little bit twofold, and I'm really motivated by the talent that, you know, chose to come here initially and chooses to stay here, and... Um, this belief that I think people deserve to have fantastic careers and places of work that really respect what they can contribute and challenge them to push harder but give them a really exceptional career path yeah. that's really motivating to me and so much bigger than the product that we make is building an organization of, of leaders that will change the world because they have different expectations from work they will give other people those opportunities that's yeah. really important to me you know, look, I have kids, and I think that that really put a different layer of inspiration for me, wanting the world to be a place that I want them to live in. And, mm -hmm. you know, we all have an ability to make some mark on that. And I do think that I have the ability to leave a mark on both female leadership and then, again, like, leadership in general and what it should be like to go to work. And I, don't, I want for them to have a career, a job that really you know, brings out the best in them and, and expects the best from them, but also has a reciprocal relationship with them versus just takes. And I'm, you know, I hope that we can set that example and that the people here will continue to lead by that example and that it will impact everybody's children and how they go to work. Because I think what our parents went to work in just seems unimaginable. Um, and that we should be saying that the place where we spend at least a third of our time, I mean, we have to demand more yeah. of it. I totally agree. And going on from that, I guess, what is the future of Birchbox? I mean, you guys are now, a uni are you guys officially a unicorn? Have you got the stamp of approval yet? I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't really, I don't know if that matters, but I think, you know, we have this huge idea of serving the majority of women and it's, you know, massive in and of itself. It's global. Yeah. It um, is always going to be changing around how you do that. Yeah. You know, I think it's led us to, to take steps we never could have imagined around product evolution for the subscription as well as launching physical brick and mortar. We're launching our second store in a couple weeks in Paris, which we could have never imagined. So mm -hmm. the idea of trying to serve the majority of women and make discovery for her beautiful, right? Highly efficient, yeah. highly delightful. That is what's next. And, um, you know, it requires for us to be 
a large, well-functioning, omni-channel business. And it requires for us to be nimble enough to know whatever Birchbox is today doesn't matter. It matters who we serve and whatever evolution is required to serve her is what we will do. Sure. And I know there's going to be a meeting in him. I'm getting some eyeballs. Um, Just some advice. What is your advice, your one word or your piece of advice to the startup founder who's just about to start out, male, female? What would you say to them? I think that start, you know, that's my advice. I think a lot of people stay in this mode of, you know, iterating on the idea, like getting, gathering more detail, um, thinking that they just still have a barrier because they can't launch their full vision. And I think starting is the hardest thing and iterating on it while the product is happening, hopefully while you're getting someone to pay for it, you know, learning about it while you're doing it is so valuable. Yeah. Um, and it's going to teach you so much about what the product can become versus kind of trying to wait and make it perfect mm-hmm. um, and then being out there. I, you know, everything's different for everyone, but that's just something that I really believe in for me and that I believe that a lot of people could take that advice. Awesome. Katia, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. So thank you so much. Just want to say another massive thank you to Batchbox and the team and Katia for doing the show. It was awesome coming down to your very nice offices and at Midtown. As always, guys, I'd like to give you my top three key takeaways from the episode, and then you can tweet me your own as well. Number one, send those cold emails. I've basically lived my entire life sending cold emails. Um, If your proposition is that compelling and you can't articulate that to brands, then do it. Katia practically got 100% hit rate sending emails to huge corporates, just selling them the vision and the plan that she had for their business as well as hers, which ultimately got the business off the ground. So send those cold emails, guys. The second thing that Katia said that really stood out to me was that in the beginning, she had tunnel vision. Neither her or her co-founder had technical expertise or industry credibility to launch Birchbox, but they just didn't care. They had an idea and they had a vision, and that's all they really kind of needed to get the ball rolling. So if you don't have you know, a technical co-founder or this or that, just start and just keep going and just have tunnel vision in the beginning. I know some people say tunnel vision can be, you know, can hinder your startup, but I think sometimes it's needed. And lastly, when it comes to competition, don't worry about it. Why? Because you can't copy vision. If people copy you because you are a true pioneer in the space, then take it as a compliment, as Katia said. Focus on execution. They can't copy your vision. Only you have that. As always, guys, thank you so much for listening. And if you haven't subscribed yet, please do. We're on iTunes, Startup Hand-Me-Downs, SoundCloud and Stitcher. We're on Twitter at StartupHMD and on Instagram at Startup Hand-Me-Downs. Until next time, folks, keep grinding. I'll see you soon.